You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. I was a young, zealous, sincere Christian, probably 17 years old. And I was invited to this Bible study group that had been set up especially for seekers and doubters. That's how they said it. And people came to this group who had asked questions or raised theological problems and doubts. And this older gentleman who was leading it would listen and he would restate their question. And maybe he would ask them a question back and maybe he'd offer something. But as I listened, I became really, really disturbed because I grew up in church where we learned to quote a Bible verse to answer every question. And I kept knowing the verses that the leader should have been quoting, and he wasn't quoting them. And I just thought, what's wrong with him? And uh, so someone asks a question, and he just starts asking questions back and listening empathetically. And I'm getting really bothered because it feels like God is losing. (laughs) I want to rush in and save God. And so I raise my hand and I start to quote a Bible verse or something. And the leader very gently says to me, "Uh, this is your first time here, isn't it? I said, yeah. He said, let me talk to you as soon as we're done. Uh, And then he just went on and, you know, just let the thing finish. So after the meeting's over, he pulls me aside and he says, you know, listen, I, I didn't want to be rude to you, but this is a place where people are asking their questions. And, and if somebody just rushes in and tries to answer their question, that's not going to help them. They need space to think and they need a place where they can just raise their questions. So I hope you understand that's what I was trying to do. Well, I've got to tell you, I did not understand. But I understood that he might have understood something that I didn't understand. (laughs) In other words, I felt like maybe he knows what he's doing. And I remember it being one of the first experiences in my life of thinking, uh, there are people who see things that not only do I not see, that I am not even capable of seeing that way or thinking that way. If you've ever climbed a mountain, you know that the higher you get, the farther you can see and the bigger your horizon. And it's not until you get to the very top of the mountain that you can see 360 degrees. It's just impossible if you're farther down on the mountain. And I think what happened that night in that study group is The leader of that group, he was up at the top and he could see what was going on in my mind and what was going on in the minds of the different people asking questions. I just wasn't ready for that. I was down at 200 feet. He was up at 6,000 feet. And all I could see is from my limited perspective, if someone asks a question, you're supposed to quote, quote a Bible verse as the answer. In this episode of Learning How to See, we're looking at two closely related biases, the two, two glitches really in our seeing that keep us stuck at a certain altitude on the mountain. Competency bias and consciousness bias. They bring to mind Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then 
we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. Well, I think we live long enough and we realize how right Paul was, that we all know in part. And if we want to know more fully and to see more fully, we need to begin by admitting how little we know. And that's why we learn to humble ourselves and pray. We do not see everything, so we do not know everything. We do not even know how much we do not know. Nor do we know how much of what we know is actually impartial, distorted, or false. That is why we seek to open our eyes to encounter the world afresh in humility and in silent wonder to learn to see. Thanks, Brian. Um, through these previous episodes and up to this point, we've addressed five biases up to now. Brian, I'm wondering if we could pause and if you could just give us a one sentence summary of each of them before we continue on. Sure. First, confirmation bias. We see things that fit in with what we already think. Second, complexity bias. We prefer a simple lie or half-truth to a complex full truth. Complementarity bias. We easily accept truths from people who we like and treat us nicely, and we struggle to accept any knowledge or information that comes to us from someone who we don't feel safe or comfortable or friendly with. And then contact bias, that if we don't have contact with people, we can't see what they see, and so we maintain our very limited perspective. Thanks, Brian. In this episode, we're going to look at two more. We're going to begin with the competency, competency bias. I'm not saying that right. Competency bias. Uh, we are incompetent at knowing how incompetent or competent we are. So we may see less or more than we think. Our brains prefer to think of ourselves as above average. So if we were to return to that mountain climbing metaphor, Competency, the competency bias is what happens when we think we're closer to the top of the mountain than we really are. We think we see everything in all directions, but really our view is still very, very small. So team, when you hear these definitions, what are your first reactions? What, what comes to mind? I have to say what comes to mind to me is, is if, that direction, if that definition is fully complete. Um, speaking both from a woman's point of view and from a BIPOC person's point of view, I'm not sure how much that myself of being conditioned to think of myself as above average, how fully that actually is. I know it's there in some way, you know, like say in my own community, say among other African Americans, um, I was basically, I was tracked on a fast track for education, you know, in the smart kids classes. But at the same time, um, both as a woman and as um, a BIPOC person, especially once busing happened, 
there were just so many ways where I was being told and shown that I was below average. And that too was also mm -hmm. in my brain. Um, so I, so, it, so sometimes I think that there's, there's actually mm -hmm. more to this, um, that it has more dimensions in that I may be more competent than I think I am um, sometimes because I've been socialized to think, not to think of myself as competent. Um, and mm. there may also be expectations placed on me by my community that I may not be able to meet, but I've been socialized to, you know, to give back in certain ways that maybe I'm not able to give back. So I, I do think that there's more, there's a more more dimensions to this bias, especially if you're not in the dominant culture um, than what this definition um, brings. That's a really, really great point. Um, and it's great that you bring up education, you know, as an example, uh, because the, one of the main sources for uh, my understanding of this bias is a theory in education called the Dunning-Kruger hypothesis. And, the, and, and w this is something that's been pretty, you know, pretty thoroughly tested out. And in, in, in general, on average, most people uh, tend to think of themselves as above average whenever you ask them, you know, how they fit in in their knowledge of something. But that's in general. And in general, always hides the this, this specifics. And majorities, in a sense, outweigh the evidence from, the, from minority groups. So that's the perfect example to bring up. And, and in fact, what the Dunning-Kruger hypothesis says, Gigi, is that we are incompetent to assess our own incompetence or our own competence. And, and if you think about it, this makes sense because I have no way of knowing how much other people know. And so some of us are prone to think, I know a lot about this. I probably know more than most people. So we give ourselves an above average. But others of us who may be really competent we know enough to know there's way more to know than we know. So we're the ones who are more likely to be humble and underestimate uh, where we would come in the percentile rankings of how much we know. So it's such a great example. And another example from our last episode of how the communities we're part of can give us messages that we internalize, and then they become part of our internal confirmation bias. Other people told me I was a bad student. There I am being a bad student. Other people told me whatever, you know, and and we internalize those things. So, so such a great example to bring up. Thanks. Yeah, I know for myself, um, it was padded into my ego, you know, as a as a white straight man that I was way more competent than I am in uh, in many ways. And I I also know that being someone who has delved in the deep end of uh, biblical studies and and spirituality, that there. Um, I also think I'm more competent in unknowing or in mystery than uh, others are. And that has bit me in the ass so many times where I've been in like a book study with somebody or like, or people will turn to me and be like, well, you have a couple degrees. Let's, let's see what Paul has to think. <laughs> and yet someone who has never studied uh, at the supposed depth that I have will say the most wise, thoughtful, soulful thing. And I'm taking notes because I'm reminded once again that my socialization of my competence or my, my how I think of my own competence is actually uh, needs to take a, a seat or be humbled just a few notches to uh, the reality of what's going on around me. Um, and so 
those moments are so enlightening when my own, uh, when I'm taken off my high horse. Um, and also when I see others who my assumptions of their lack of knowledge or incompetence <laughs> in a certain area are just far beyond what I thought. I, and I'm always, I just marvel in those moments of what's revealed, uh, not only of that person, but the gifting that they give to me in those situations. It's funny. I'm just going to springboard off that thinking about here. Uh, sometimes we've said about the living school here, you know, it's a firm grounding in ambiguity because so much of it is about unknowing and learning, learning what you don't know. And it's such a particular moment in time <laughs> to think about that because I think, I think we live mm -hmm. in a culture that often confuses access to information with, uh, the understanding of information, much less the integration of it. And we have access to a lot of information. Yes. And so it's so quick to, you know, this, again, where all these biases blend together, it's so quick to, to quickly find some expert somewhere that I can find one bullet point sentence that confirms what I already think. And then I <laughs> piggyback their expertise and, and feel that, uh, that I own that. And I, I worry at times that we're finding all these ways to kind of like inflate our understanding of how much we know. Um, and it's this, this kind of paradoxical handicap. Um, it's this paradoxical and unexpected challenge in having access to so much, so much information that we can never fully sift through. I think this gets us, this uh, bias gets us into trouble uh, when we, in both ways, the, the, the way that Gigi brought up, when we actually are capable of things that we don't think we're capable of, um, and when we think we're capable of things that we're, that we're not, or we think we have a full understanding of things we're not. And the irony is that both of those errors invite us to have an opportunity to learn <laughs> and yes. to, to discover I really know more than I think I did, or I really am capable of more than I, I thought I was, or, wow, I still have a lot to learn. This is a bias. I think that it's important to also talk about how it works in community, because that's also what I was talking about. There's the sort of socialized competency bias that we have on certain groups. Like there are certain groups who have competency. I think of Asians as a quote-unquote model minority you know there are certain groups that have certain competencies and so we only see them be as being competent in that yes. and there are other groups who are just who are just seen as incompetent in so many ways so i think th that it's also important to to at least show the social and systemic um, way in which this bias is is and it's always showing its head but in, in these times it's it seems to be showing its head in, in that way and actually and and at this moment. So I just thought it was important to also to flag that as well. So important. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Gigi. And right, I just think too, it springs to mind of like how then it gets codified in in, in policies uh, and then just perpetuates and builds upon itself over time. And, and sometimes we'll, it's harder to question because it's, it can be so baked in to our systems at large. So th yes, thanks, Gigi. Um, holding all of that, uh, I wonder if we can turn to our prayer to practice addressing the competency bias. Wellspring of all self-knowledge. Give me humility so that I do not overestimate my competence. 
saved me both from excessive confidence and a lack of confidence. Instead, please grant me proper confidence to see myself, my abilities, and my limitations with a clear eye and sound mind. Learning how to see will continue in a moment. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Our second bias for today is consciousness bias. This is a this bias, this consciousness bias means basically a person's level of consciousness makes seeing some things possible and others impossible. Our brains see from a location or a level of maturity. Brian, your newest book provides one framework for talking about levels of consciousness and maturity. Could you briefly outline that four-stage model that you refer to? Sure. Uh, and I and I think we all know that you know any model of human development can be abused, and every model of human development simplifies. And there are some that are very, very simple. Like one of the best is one of the simplest, which Richard, uh, Father Richard uses, first half of life, second half of life. And then many people are familiar with uh, integral theory and Piaget and uh, James Fowler and Lawrence Kohlberg and so many great theorists, Nicholas Slee and many others. Um, but uh, here's a simple, uh, a simple framework. Simplicity is where we all start as children and this is the stage of dualism where we put things into the categories of right or wrong, us or them, in or out, friend or enemy, safe or dangerous, and so on. And then some of us stay there our whole lives. Some of us move into complexity where now we start seeing those shades of gray and we start seeing uh, that there are many different ways to, uh, to look at things. And we uh, now try to master all of that complexity. You could say this is the stage of pragmatism because we're, we think we can do it. We think we can figure out the complexity and master it all. Um, many of us stay there our whole lives. Um, uh, but some people then go into perplexity, and perplexity is where we become suspicious about what we learned in simplicity and in complexity. And we go back and, and in a sense, try to deconstruct it, and we see the inadequacies of it, and we... Uh, and, and we might say this is the, the stage of skepticism uh, and relativism. Uh, and then many of us, that's where we get, and we don't think there's anywhere else we could go. And then I think more and more people are exploring a fourth stage that I call harmony, where we, in a sense, harmonize those first three stages. Instead, we, we think of them like rings on a tree, where the innermost ring is simplicity. That's kind of the backbone where we learned right and wrong. But we didn't stop there. We added the ring of complexity, the pragmatism to grapple with the complexities of life. And, and we didn't stop there. We then embraced that in perplexity where we learned how to think critically and ask questions and, and look at issues of systemic injustice and 
really to look at biases is a very stage three thing to do. And then harmony allows us to not just judge or put down people for being where they are, but it, it, it allows us to have empathy and love and then to try to be a healing and unifying presence. So that little uh, system, uh, that little model might be helpful to people to, to take this bias and say, if you're at the stage of simplicity, there are certain things that come naturally to you. It's what you're learning to do. But some of those later uh, operations, uh, you're not ready for them yet. It's not that you're being a bad person. It's just that you haven't learned them yet. Any more than for a person who's learning algebra and doesn't yet know trigonometry or calculus, they're not bad. In fact, they can't even learn calculus until they learn their algebra. So, so that's kind of the idea of, of stages. And, and um, there's this repeated contrast in the Bible between the wise and the foolish. And, uh, and of special note are those who are wise in their own eyes, as Proverbs 3, 7 says. Or in Philippians 2, Paul says, do not be wise in your own opinion. And so I think that's maybe the most important takeaway from uh, any kind of model of stage theory or stages of consciousness is to say, um, don't think that you see and know everything. Uh, and in fact, I think we could say that if you are at a more advanced level, you might be forgetting some things that people at earlier levels are specialists in, and, uh, and you need them around to remind you of those things that you might be forgetting. Um, I guess a, a way to say the same thing in, uh, or a similar thing in Buddhist teaching is to say uh, the opposite of being wise in your own eyes is to, be, is to have the beginner's mind um, so that whatever stage we're in, we, we maintain this idea, I have a lot to learn, I'm a beginner, I, anyone can be my teacher, uh, and, uh, and that helps us, I think, to not be wise in our own eyes. This is interesting. Perhaps this is why Jesus spoke in parables, right? So simple, so deep, um, to invite people into that beginner's mind. My favorite uh, early Christian mystic said that a really good sacred text or a really good sacred teaching scandalizes you. Mm. It has to. It has to scandalize your sense of certainty to to crack you open so that you can learn. Mm. Um, and the minute you think you have it, you don't. It's always a little bit of a riddle. That's great. I remember I was taught in school, there's inductive reasoning and deductive reasoning, but what you're describing is abductive reasoning. <laughs> it abducts you, <laughs> it cracks you open, it grabs you out of your normal categories and says, hold it, I don't know what's mm. going on here, and puts you in that that humble beginner's mind. Mm. Yeah, that, that makes me wonder um, if there's, I mean, with all of these biases, because I think in many ways, all of these biases take you away from beginner's mind for from seeing things with new eyes. And um, I, I come back to this, um, I think it was um, one of the, I think it was um, Shinru Suzuki who says not knowing is most intimate. And so I wonder about the, the relationship between seeing things anew and intimacy and just how difficult that is in our culture. And, and how these biases keep us separate from each other and separate from um, not, not, not just those who are different from us, but even separate from those who are even in our community. And so I, I, I wonder, I don't have any answers, but I, it's just a wondering about 
what what having having addressed these biases in some way because we will always have them but there are ways in mm -hmm. which they don't have us i guess um and so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i, I wonder if what that does to intimacy when we're able to have these biases serve us more than us being slaves to those biases mm. gigi i uh that quote that you read before um would that be apropos here sure um i actually have it right here um give me one second it's um it's from um gary zukoff's dancing wooly masters and he's quoting a teacher named al chung liang huang and this is the quote when i say that every lesson is the first lesson it does not mean that we forget what we already know. It means that what we are doing is always new because we are always doing it for the first time. Oh, that's so great to capture that, that sense that, that we, we all drift out of. We go into autopilot and we think, I, I, I think as you were saying before, Gigi, we're in a conversation, we think, oh, I know what they're going to say. <laughs> so we, you know, we save, we save some energy by not actually listening, but oh, what a beautiful challenge to us to keep in that posture of humility and openness. Mm -hmm. That's so true. And I think about that too with, when you see folks who are, have, a, have an easy confidence in where they're at, where they're, it's a it's a twenty year old who knows they're a twenty year old and is eager to learn from that place of being a twenty year old. They're not trying to impress upon others that they have the wisdom of a of a uh, an eighty five year old monk. Yes, but they can just own their spot in life with that sense of beginner's mind. And then I think, in my mind, I imagine those folks are the same people when I meet uh, an eighty year old wise elder. They have that exact same energy of bringing that beginner's mind that fresh present moment to the the same in that in that same way that that 20 year old does and i think that's what i i i hope to aspire to in the in these kind of conversations is can i not pretend or project of who i want to be down the road but can i just fully own where i am right now and laugh the limitations of that enjoy the the riches of that but not try to to surpass or undermine it, just just enjoy it, because this is my only chance to be a forty-year-old in this moment uh, with my level of experience. That's does that make sense? What I'm kind of getting at with that? Perfect. So much sense. It, it makes me think of the importance of curiosity, you know, as another practice for um, getting out of that competency bias, um, coming with beginner's mind, being curious. That even if you think, or even if I think I'm competent, can I allow myself to th to be always learning, um, mm. and to be in a place of of curiosity of okay, maybe I am, maybe I'm not competent, but what else do I need to know? Here's the prayer we'll be using to address consciousness bias. Voice who beckons me toward growth. Help me see what I am mature enough to see right now. And not only that, help me to know now how little I can know. Until I grow more mature. Grant me curiosity and awe. So that I may honor the bottomless, limitless wonder. 
and the beauty, glory, and mystery that permeates this world. Friends, today we've explored two of the most personal biases, the ones that require some deep self-knowledge and uh, deep work to appreciate where we are and yet know that we have miles to go before we sleep. Competency bias reminds us that we're probably not as far up the mountain as we think we are, or we might be farther up the mountain than we think we are. Consciousness bias reminds us that wherever we are, we can only see what is seeable from that altitude or location. Having a beginner's mind, seeing that this is the first time we've ever done this part of life before, helps us to deal wisely with these biases and invites us to pray like this. Again, we invite you to feel and affirm your desire to grow in your maturity so that your ability to see grows wider and deeper, not narrower and shallower with age. Source of wonder, help us see with wonder. Depth of mystery, help us find delight in truths so profound that they surpass all knowing. Fountain of compassion, Help us see with compassion. Bringer of justice, help us see with justice. Revealer of truth, help us see what is real. Holy wisdom, whose presence fills our ever-expanding universe, help our horizons ever to expand. Light of glory, help us to see with humility and awe. Amen. 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 Thanks so much for joining us in this important time of prayer. If you'd like to engage with these prayers or intentions even more, they're available on a sister podcast called Practices for Learning How to See. You'll find the link in the show notes. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.